<laughs> there we are. We're going to read um, Ezekiel 43 as we carry on in the last of uh, the current series in Ezekiel, which has been an overview of the, the whole book over five weeks. And there's page 876, 876, and it's entitled God's Glory Returns to the Temple. And if you could maybe look out for three words beginning with D-E, uh, detestable, um, design, and um, another one. And see if you can find it uh, as we go through. God's glory returns to the temple. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the river Kiba. And I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Neither will their kings by their prostitution and their funeral offerings for their kings at their death. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulation. This is the top law of the temple. All of the surrounding area on top of the mountains will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're picking up in um, David Pawson's book, Unlocking the Bible. And we're in uh, chapter 40 through 48 today. And his sort of epilogue on why Ezekiel's important to Christians today. Uh, just a brief recap, though. Uh, last week, we... Uh, picked up chapters 33 through 37, um, and there's sort of the glory of the return from exile, as well as the revenge on the neighbors of Judah. And uh, one thing that really stood out to me from last week is the change in tone that happens in the book of Ezekiel when you reach rock bottom. Um, I don't know if you've ever sort of reached rock bottom in your life, but all the way up to the point that the, uh, the Jerusalem is destroyed, Ezekiel is um, sort of just uh, full of uh, angst and anger and judgment. And then when it's finally destroyed, the tone changes to one of hope uh, for restoration. It's very interesting uh, sort of dynamic going on there. And, uh, and I think the one that brings hope to us as well, when you sort of think, actually, this is it. I've bottomed out a negative situation. <laughs> um, now the only way is up. There is, there is hope coming. And uh, in the passages we're going to look at now, 
we see uh, the restoration of the thing that mattered most to Ezekiel uh, and that had been lost. So here we go. The most serious loss to the people and Israel was the loss of the temple. They had always assumed that whatever else might be lost, God would never let his own dwelling place on earth be destroyed. So this section, chapters 43 and 48, focus on the temple, and it's the most difficult part of the book to understand. According to the text, the prophecy was given in the 25th years of Ezekiel's exile, so he's 50 years of age. As a rule, when the Bible gives a date for a prophecy, they mean that you must fit the text into its historical context in order to understand it. Ezekiel was not allowed to finish preaching to the exiles without filling them with the hope of something to look forward to. They may have been disciplined by God, but they would not be destroyed. God would never allow his people in Israel to disappear. Jesus said that heaven and earth may pass away, but the Jewish race will never pass away. Its continued existence is one of the proofs that the God of Israel is real. God communicates his eternity to whatever he touches, so you can't destroy what belongs to him. The plan for the building of this temple is given in chapters 40 and through 42. The building's described in great detail as in an architectural plan. Its dimensions would be enough for 13 English cathedrals, but it's quite different from Solomon's temple. It's bigger. It has no Holy of Holies, no Ark of the Covenant, and no table for the shrewbread. And in chapter 43 that we've just looked at, Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of the Lord returning to the temple and lighting it up, just as it did following Solomon's dedicatory prayer, which happened 600 years before. The glory was so bright that it was necessary for it to be covered up by the veil so it would not blind people. Ezekiel had earlier seen the glory depart, and now he sees it return. Imagine that picture coming in. You know, this is 13 cathedral-sized temple up on Temple Mount. The whole place is to be holy, and the glory of God appears into the temple in such a way that you can't even look at it. I mean, that's, that's the picture that he's painting here. Very, very striking. But there's no Ark of the Covenant, there's no Holy of Holies, and there's also no, uh, but there is also an altar and there are sacrifices, although there's no high priest. This is significant to help us try and interpret it, because when the Jews returned from exile, they did have high priests up until and including the time of Jesus. In this chapter, the place of the high priest is taken by a prince of priests. Interestingly, the only priest in the visions are son of, the sons of Zadok, who are Ezekiel's family. The description of the temple is especially intriguing because it's never been built. The Ezekiel temple is not something that's ever been built. When the people of Judah returned from exile, they did build a temple. We looked at that when we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but it was, looked so poor that the prophet Zechariah had to tell them not to despise the day of small things. Even compared to Solomon's temple, the temple that was rebuilt seemed pitiful. Compared to Ezekiel's temple, far worse. Furthermore, they didn't have a king when they returned. They just had uh, Joshua as high priest and Zerubbabel as governor. At the time of Jesus, uh, King Herod, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, was rebuilding the temple on grander lines to impress the Jews. And you can still see this, uh, some of it, in Jerusalem today. He did incorporate some of Solomon's ideas into it, but it's quite different from Ezekiel's vision. This temple was of enormous size and still being built when Jesus began his ministry. Some of the stones were 40 feet long, three feet high, and three feet deep, weighing 100 tons. 
An incredible engineering feat, apart from anything. You can see how they did it with pulleys and so forth in, in Jerusalem today. Uh, it was a magnificent sight, but Jesus said that not one stone would be left standing on another. And it was hardly finished when the Romans pulled the whole thing down in AD 70. So Jesus' prediction came absolutely true. So the question uh, remains for us, is Ezekiel's temple ever going to be built? And it's fair to say that different Christians have had different perspectives on this down the years. Um, and the, the one response is that it's not a literal temple. Uh, it's not intended to be built literally. It's a prophetic vision to give the Jewish people hope. The detail in this vision makes it seem realistic, but it's a parable that should be read for spiritual value. Uh, this does not completely explain the bit that we just read about how, um, why Ezekiel's told to tell the people uh, such detail. And I said when we read through chapter 43 to look out for the DE words, um, detestable practices, which have been the reason for the temple being destroyed. Um, and the second one is describe the temple. Do you see in verse 10, he's told to describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. So in other words, it's paint a picture of what the temple's going to be like. Um, sort of explain how vast it's going to be. Explain the glory that's going to come into the temple. Uh, see if you can evoke a response in people. See if they, if they catch the vision. So like uh, John was uh, uh, leading our staff meeting earlier today and painting a vision for our services. And it's like, do you catch the vision? Do you feel that you're grabbing the vision? And do you feel shame and sorrow about what's gone wrong that hasn't reached where you thought it could be? Do you feel sorrow at yourself? And he says, if they get sorrowful when they're faced with the description of the temple, if they're remorseful at the piteousness of their own spiritual journey, then describe um, the design, describe the design in detail. And uh, that's in verse 11. If they're ashamed of all they've done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write them down so they may be faithful to its design and follow its, all its regulations. So it's like there's two phases. One is describe what could happen, God's glory. And if that lands on good soil, so people can hear it with a certain amount of repentance because they can see that their reality doesn't face up to God's reality, then download specific detail of the vision to come. And this feels to me like quite an important spiritual principle uh, in our own lives. Sometimes we're saying, God's not really speaking to me about what I should do next or so forth. Um, and the question might be, well, what have you done with the description that he's previously downloaded with you? We often say, what have you done with the last thing God said to you? But this suggests a sort of a two-phase. He's generally given you a vision. He's, uh, he's described something to you. Has your response been to really get it down deep and drill into it? Has your response been particularly one uh, of being ashamed of sins and putting behind you any detestable practices? Because if you reach that criteria, then God will also download and design to you in detail of what comes next. It's very interesting, isn't it? You think about church planting, about setting up new ministries, about your own life, your own walk. How have you responded to the, the description uh, with repentance to then get the fuller revelation that God is clearly holding back from his people at this stage because he doesn't want to so cast pearls before swine. Why should he give us more information than he needs to? It's testing our hearts to see if we can be trustworthy with it. 
as one of the uh, Psalms says, Psalm 25, 16, I think it is, says, God confides in those who fear him. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He shares the secrets of his heart. He's saying, he's not sharing his secrets with me. <laughs> have we reached the criteria that we're supposed to have our part to play of uh, being those who fear him and repent as we get revelation from him? Uh, so, anyway, this is a, a, an excursion from the, the fact that some people see it as a non-literal uh, thing. Um, and uh, Parsons here is saying, that the detail makes it seem realistic. And others argue that it's a description of a heavenly temple. Um, and you can see uh, Bible passages in Exodus 25, Hebrews 8, and Revelation 9 as uh, possible uh, uh, backups for, for those interpretations. So this is a spiritual temple that will be in existence in, uh, in a new Jerusalem, in a new heaven. Um, so those are the non-literal interpretations. Uh, literal interpretations uh, divided into past and future. And past is that another possibility is that God wanted them to build this temple, but the people ignored Ezekiel's plans and built their own cheap version under uh, sort of the Ezra time and, and so forth, which they could afford. This would explain why the glory didn't return, the prince didn't come, and the river didn't flow. Supporters of this view point to the fact that here in chapter 43, the refrain that occurs throughout the book is, then you will know, uh, does not appear. So that, that phrase, then you will know, doesn't come in. So maybe the people missed the chance to build the temple that they should have built in the return from exile. Uh, so past interpretation. Uh, and a future interpretation is that the temple will be built in the future. Many Christians are convinced that this will be part of the New Jerusalem. The 12 gates will be named after the 12 tribes, and the New Jerusalem will be called uh, the words right at the end of the book of Ezekiel, uh, which are, the Lord is there. Others speculate that the temple would be rebuilt, rebuilt by Jewish people before Jesus returns, or be rebuilt in a time period that some call the millennium. The problem here is that other prophets mention sacrifices, altars, and priests, all of which are absent from this vision. And some Christians point out that the New Testament makes it clear that God does not dwell in temples, uh, Acts 17 and Acts 7. And Jesus refers to himself as this temple. And Christians are also described as temples. Therefore, in this argument, whether the temple is rebuilt or not doesn't really matter because God's people are now his temple. And it's hard to be definite, Pawsons argues, about whether the temple will be rebuilt. This is one of those areas we're going to have to wait and see. The good news is that God's plan was that he would come and dwell on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. All believers are the temple of God now. He dwells in us. So however uncertain we may be about Ezekiel's vision of the temple, we can rejoice in this. And I don't know if you've got your personal preference uh, there. It's very interesting, isn't it? I, I was up on Temple Mount uh, just around a year ago, um, where obviously the Dome of the Rock is now, the Great Mosque. Um, and the whole uh, flat area up there is the, the area this chapter says has to be holy to the Lord. Um, and you can see reading these chapters why it's very evocative for people that, that it feels incomplete in some sense uh, in terms of the Christian and Jewish fulfillment of that area. And yet, um, I think for many Christians, the, the sort of allegorical interpretation that we are God's temple um, seems really important. Like, God is there. Where is God? He is with us. Surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. We carry around God's presence as we worship. God's presence uh, particularizes itself among us. Do we need a temple? What would you do with a temple if there was a temple? 
Um, what sacrifices would be made when Jesus is already the great sacrifice? So they're, they're interesting things to hold together, aren't they, and to think on. And then the final chapters of the book then. Chapter 45, the whole land is divided between the tribes, but in a way very different to that prescribed in the book of Joshua. It's allocated into horizontal strips from east to west. So we have the restoration of offerings and holy feasts and holy days, with the exception of Pentecost. And chapter 47 includes uh, one of those chapters that we do actually preach on in church from time to time. It's the vision of the new river in the middle of the east. Most rivers that run through the promised land flow into the Mediterranean from the hills, but there is one amazing river called the Jordan that runs along the longest crack in the earth's surface from Syria to Africa. The deepest point in this crack and the lowest point on, on the surface of the earth is Jericho. And in Ezekiel's vision, the new source of the new river is right under the temple up in Jerusalem. And any river that starts there has to flow into the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's surrounded by hills, but there's one opening in those hills to the southwest of the city, which runs straight down to the Dead Sea. And this is the, the road that the, um, in Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan, it's down that road. It's a river running down that road with... Uh, and you remember any talks on the Good Samaritan, it's a, a desert wasteland thing, and a river flowing from Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea, uh, 400 meters or so below sea level. And he sees a river going down that valley, and more and more tributaries joining the river, so it gets deeper and deeper, and a man wading, uh, so he soon finds himself out of depth and having to swim. He sees the new river entering the Dead Sea in the rivers of Engedi, halfway along the West Bank, and there's a place where, that's the place where David hid from Saul in the caves. He sees this river freshening the sea and the fishermen of Galilee coming down to, sea, to the sea to fish. So it's no longer the dead sea, it's a fresh live sea. The whole vision is a dream to fill the people with hope that the future is going to be better. And again, in the ecology of Israel now, the dead sea is one of the great uh, natural disasters of the world. It's uh, gradually reducing in size. It's, uh, it's, there's not enough water flowing into it currently from the Galilee. Um, it's an ecological catastrophe. So um, again, you sort of think, well, I wonder, I wonder, uh, what, what would this look like if it was a literal thing? Although the climate, um, climatologists among you may be like, yeah, but <laughs> how does that work? Um, and finally, in the last chapter of the book of Ezekiel, you see the gates of the city being re-erected and the land enjoying peace and prosperity. Everything is wonderful. So what began as a gloomy book finishes with great hope. So, as Paulson says, difficult chapters to interpret for us because it's hard to see when and where they get fulfilled. Are we to allegorize them, spiritualize them, make them something that tells us something about Jesus? Um, there, there's there's a, certainly a, a reasonable way of reading in that way. Um, and yet there's this sort of unfulfilled longing and hope that all things will be restored. And one of the great Christian themes is the kingdom of God coming on earth as in heaven uh, and a new heaven and a new earth being created. And so we, we imagine that the world will not always be just as we can see it now, uh, but when Jesus comes again, the things will be very transformed. And it, it may be uh, that geography will have more to do with things than we can imagine. We know that Jesus is coming back uh, in the same place that he ascended. Um, that's what the angel said to the disciples. So maybe Jesus is coming back there. Every eye will see him in some peculiar way um, on a round globe. Uh, maybe that's sky television. <laughs> maybe it's something beyond. But we're supposed to be sort of 
I think almost like intoxicated with, I don't know how it works, but it sounds amazing, God. Please bring it on. Bring life into the desert. Make even the Dead Sea flow again with, uh, with life. And so um, Pawson's just finishes with uh, a simple uh, two pages on why should Christians read Ezekiel. And he says, firstly, the book tells us that God judges his own people. Judgment begins at the house of the Lord. God is holy and he must judge. A judge has got two functions. One is to punish the wicked and the second is to vindicate the righteous. God is the perfect judge because he knows everything. He can do anything and can be everywhere. His name was tied to the Jewish nation, so he had to punish them for their sin. But because of his mercy, he also had to rescue them from his enemies. Too many Christians think that as soon as you've believed in Jesus, judgment is finished. But this is far from the case. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God judges his own people, and he judges them by a higher standard than others. That's what we were saying earlier about the, uh, being, having a revelation of the description versus the design. If we're prepared to let God judge us, then he can reveal more of himself to us. Or if we're like, I'm okay, Jesus, save me. We're sort of stuck at an entry level of, of Christianity. We want God to really root into us and examine our inner being. So firstly, God judges his own people. Secondly, uh, we need to remember that God does take a vengeance if people mistreat us, it's not necessary for us to try and pay them back. We can safely leave this to God. So when someone is treating you badly, you can feel sorrow rather than anger, for God is going to pay them back. There is a, an equality in the grand scheme of things. There is a righteous judge. Thirdly, God will always restore his people. He will always restore his people. He judges his people. He brings he brings a, a vengeance where necessary, but he also restores his people. Just as Israel will never disappear from history, the church will never disappear either. We belong to the people of eternity, and there will always be an Israel and a church, and one day there will be one flock under one shepherd. God is the God who restores his people. Fourthly, we must note that a great deal of what we've looked at in Ezekiel is picked up in the book of Revelation. One of the reasons we don't easily understand Revelation is we don't know much about the Old Testament and Ezekiel in particular. Revelation alludes to the Old Testament 300 times and picks up on symbols from Ezekiel and uses so much from this Old Testament book that if you don't know Ezekiel, you will never understand Revelation. Um, you may never understand either of them, to be fair, but <laughs> you can give it a go. Above all, Ezekiel gives us a view of God, of his omnipotence, his power, and his omnipresence. Omnipotence, power, and omnipresence. He's a big, strong God. There's a tremendous sense of his holiness in the book, a sense that he has tied his name to a nation, and his name rests in their hands. The one thing we can appeal to is God's name and God's reputation. If we know that it's his name that is linked to us, we will either give God a good name or a bad name, but God will always vindicate himself in the long term. And I was thinking about this, this one earlier today. We were praying in the staff team, and we are praying about Easter and outreach during Holy Week as we try and put up a marquee outside the church and uh, some crosses and uh, make a sort of splash in the area to celebrate the fact that someone has died for our sins and has taken away our punishment uh, that we righteously deserve. Um, and one thing that sort of struck me was a sort of a, a drop of blood falling from Calvary's tree onto the ground and thinking, Lord, let not that drop drop in vain. 
if that drop is the drop that's designed to cover Chiswick in this time in history. You know, let not that drop be wasted, Lord. Let not Jesus' blood go to waste. Let not his name uh, miss out on the fruit that should come from his labors. And so this book always reminds us that when God's reputation is at stake in his, in his people, that's why he'll restore them, because he has to vindicate his name. He'll never let the earth and the nations think that he is finished as God just because it looks like his people are finished. Many of his people may perish, uh, but his people will fundamentally continue because they're interlinked with the name of God. And it's, it's a great prayer to pray sometimes, the prayer that we hear a lot in the Old Testament, uh, not for our sakes, O Lord, but for the sake of your name, have mercy remember mercy. We might think of that as we pray for the Church of England this week of General Synod. You know, not for our sake, O oh Lord, but for your sake, remember mercy. As we think about all the things that, uh, that we have to be ashamed of, uh, we say, God, but for your sake, have mercy on your church. Restore the honor of your name in works of sovereign power. Come judge the earth again and bring us to our knees before you, that we may not just hear of your, uh, your general plans, but get your specific ones as well. Amen.